Thank you for joining us for a message from the Christian Fellowship Church of Kandu, North Dakota. Please visit our website for more information about our church at kanducfc.com. So uh, it's time It's time to dive back into the Gospel of John. I know last week Jim Sorum was here and he did a wonderful job. And we are appreciative of having a guy like him in close proximity to our church. It just makes Karen and I feel like we can take our family uh, for a little break here and there with confidence, knowing that there's good and godly people here to, to carry on in, in our absence. But I'm excited to get back into John. Uh, we're going to tackle 30 verses today, and they are beefy, okay? Like, there's a lot of meat on the bone here. So I would really encourage you to follow along, take notes, have your Bibles open, whatever you need to do, because I think that the Holy Spirit is going to reveal things to us, and we want to make sure that we don't just have them kind of wash over us and then forget about them, but we want to take them down, understand them, apply them to life, right? So let me pray here, and then we're going to get into John 12. Father, in your name, we, we come before you and we want to do your will. We want to honor you with the way that we study your word. There's a lot of interesting angles and, and ideas to discuss in this passage. So we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would just open up our hearts to understand what it is that you want to say to us. Help us to understand the big concepts. But more than that, Jesus, we also ask that you help us to understand the things that you're saying to us individually. You know each and every person here. You know exactly what they faced this week, the questions that they have, the wonderings of their heart, and we know that you are the one who is capable of speaking to all those things. So would you do that now, please? Amen. Okay, <clears throat> so last time we were in John, we were in the first part of John chapter 12 where Mary anointed Jesus' feet with perfume and then she wiped them clean with her hair. She knew that Jesus' last days were here, and because her love and appreciation for Jesus was so great, she stopped at nothing to show an extravagant display of honor to Jesus. And then Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey. It was the triumphal entry, uh, and, and we've heard about that before when we, when we get ready for like Palm Sunday and, and Easter season. As the people rushed out to meet Jesus, they praised him and they hailed him as their king. So now that Jesus is in Jerusalem and his arrival has been very public, some people have come looking for Jesus. And that's kind of where we pick up our story here in John 12, verse 20. Some Greeks who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration paid a visit to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. They said, sir, we want to meet Jesus. Philip told Andrew about it, and they went together to ask Jesus. So Greeks are also known in the Bible as Gentiles, okay? That's kind of an interchangeable term in some places. But these Greek or Gentile people, they were worshipers of God like the Jewish people were, and they were curious about this man named Jesus, who I'm sure they've heard much about. Otherwise, why would they be asking to see him? Now remember, Jesus has been ministering in Israel, the home of the Jewish people exclusively, yet here are some non-Jewish people who come to seek him out. For me, this takes us back a, a chapter to John 11, verse 50 and 52, where Caiaphas, the high priest, unknowingly prophesied about Jesus being the Savior for all people, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. And then John, he commented on what Caiaphas is saying. This is just a reminder here. 
Caiaphas was led to prophesy that Jesus would die for the entire nation, and not only for that nation, but to bring together and unite all the children of God scattered through the world. So these Greeks who show up to seek Jesus out, they're a sign of what Jesus is ready on the edge of accomplishing. Verse 23. Jesus replied, Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me because my servants must be where I am and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. So these four verses that we just read seem like a really significant contrast to me. Verse 23 and 24 are statements that Jesus is making about himself. He understands what's required of him and he is prepared to give his life as a sacrifice. But as Jesus gives his life, he knows that this will make it possible for many people, us, to have true life, eternal life, that would never be possible without Jesus' sacrifice. That's why he talks about himself as a kernel of wheat that must die to bring new life to many. And then in verse 25 and 26, Jesus kind of puts the attention on us. Just like Jesus talked about giving his life for us, now he talks about us giving our lives for him. Jesus tells us that if our only goal is to live to enjoy this life that we have here now on earth, when we die, we'll lose everything because we've invested everything in the here and now. But if while we live here on earth, we make knowing Jesus and honoring him our top priority, at the end, we will gain eternal life because we put our trust in him, right? So Jesus tells us in verse 26 that serving him means following him. Jesus was prepared to willingly give up his life here for something so much greater, the salvation of many. And because he tells us to follow him, he's asking you and me to have the same attitude that he did when he was ready to give his life. A willingness in heart to put the greatest value on eternal life rather than the life that we have here and now. So verse 23 and 24 are about what Jesus is willing to do for us. Verse 25 and 26 are about what Jesus is asking us to be willing to do as followers of him. Verse 27. Now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour. But this is the very reason I came. Jesus was human in his experience here on earth. So he knew what it meant to be conflicted. He knew the grief that he was facing and, and, and the, the, the difficulty of following through with the actions that he knew were right and good in God's eyes. So he's asking these questions. Ah, do I go through with this? This is going to be tough. But this is exactly the reason I came. So knowing the nature of the sacrifice that he is about to make, it's like Jesus is evaluating what he's about to endure We can learn from Jesus that being deeply troubled isn't a sign that something bad is about to happen, right? The death that Jesus would experience for you and me was actually very good, even though it was obviously very difficult. 
Jesus doesn't run from his responsibility because he's so in tune with God's will. And he understands that this sacrificial death is exactly the reason that he came to earth in the first place. I just think about it like this for us, right? Like, if we understand what God's purpose is for our lives, and I'm not even talking about, like, where you need to be in 10, 15, 20 years, but, like, understanding what the next 10, 15 minutes is supposed to be, how we honor Jesus, how we serve him, how we defer to him, how we yield our will to insist on his will. If we understand those things, is it easy? No, it's not. Is it good? Absolutely. So in that way, what Jesus is demonstrating for us here through this personal conversation, ah, this is going to be hard, but this is exactly what my life is all about. We can understand too that that's what we can say for ourselves. Following Jesus is hard. Being obedient to what the scriptures say is hard. Being devoted to what the Bible says and and reading it each day, that's not easy. But is it good? Yeah. And in fact, it's not only good, But it's exactly the purpose that God gives us to abide with him, to remain with him. Not to say, thank you for salvation, I'll see you in 80 years. That's never been the experience that we're supposed to have. Verse 28, Jesus says, Father, bring glory to your name. Then a voice from heaven spoke from heaven saying, I have already brought glory to my name and I will do it again. When the crowd heard the voice, some thought that it was thunder, while others declared an angel had spoken to him. So Jesus talks to God the Father, and the Father speaks audibly back to Jesus so that the people who are with him can hear it. What an amazing confirmation of what Jesus has been saying all along, right? Jesus has come from the Father, and Jesus is one with the Father, and Jesus is pointing us to the Father. Can you imagine being there? Can you imagine being here and all of a sudden one day the Lord just speaks out of heaven to us to confirm like a praise maybe that someone is asking for? Would that not solidify our faith yet again? I think this is what God's doing. He just wants people to have faith in his son because he wants people to be reconciled to him. So then he gives them this amazing display that they can have confidence in. Verse 30. Then Jesus told them, the voice was for your benefit, not mine. So Jesus says that God spoke aloud for the benefit of the people so that they might believe in Jesus. Verse 31. Then he continues by saying, the time for judging the world has come. When Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. He said this to indicate how he was going to die. Okay. So we're going to slow right down here because this is, this is probably the beefiest part of our whole passage this morning. This statement in these two verses is like Richter scale massive. The impact is just incredible. So we need to understand what's going on here. Previously, Jesus has talked about the fact that he will die. He's mentioned briefly the nature of his death in John 3.14 and 8.28, saying that he will be lifted up which refers to him being nailed to the cross. But here in verse 31 and 32, Jesus indicates exactly what his death will accomplish. So this is important, right? The first thing that he says when he's talking about what his death will accomplish is the time for judging this world has come. So we can understand from that that Jesus' death is going to bring judgment. 
So judging can mean two things in the English language. Let's not jump to conclusions. Let's figure this out. Judging can either mean to discern between right and wrong, good or evil, right? It's like a a discernment process. But it can also mean to offer a sentence or a condemnation of sorts. So here in this passage, from what I can tell, Jesus is talking about condemning, which means sentencing someone to be punished. So the question obviously then is, well, who is being judged or condemned in this passage though? Well, this verse says the world. So when we say the world, we can be referring to all the people of the world. That's one option. But Jesus judging all the people of the world at this moment doesn't make sense in light of what verses like Acts 17, 31, 1 Corinthians 4, 5, 2 Corinthians 5, 10, and Hebrews 9, verse 27 say. They would offer us a different approach here. All of those verses talk about a time in the future when Christ returns. That's when we will be risen back to face judgment. So one of those verses, 1 Corinthians 4, 5, it says this. Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each person will receive their praise from God. So what we see in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, and we compare that to where it says Jesus is going to judge the world, it doesn't seem that it's all about us, right? Because we haven't received judgment yet. I haven't. I don't know if you have, but I haven't. Because that time hasn't come. So the question is then, if our judgment is going to come in the future, when Christ returns to this earth, who is Jesus judging now here in John 12, 31? Well, he's rendering judgment on Satan. The one who has been a source of wicked and evil in this world. The one who has ruled over this world with lies and fear and causing people to walk in spiritual bondage. Revelation 12 actually helps us really understand what's going on here in John 12. So in Revelation 12, starting at verse 7, it says this. Then there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels, and the dragon lost the battle, and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with his angels. Okay, so there's a little bit of clarity when it says cast out and judgment. We see that this is where it comes from. At the cross, Jesus dropped the hammer of, of judgment on Satan in heaven and in, or on earth. And this is how it played out in heaven. God's chief angel, Michael, along with the angels under his command, they entered into a spiritual war in the heavenly realms against Satan and his demons. Michael and the angels won, and as a result, Satan was cast out of heaven. Okay, so he did not have the opportunity to exist any longer in the spiritual realm as he had to that point. So the second part of John 30, 12, 31 says that Satan, the ruler of the world, will be cast out. We understand this a little bit now. It's coming into focus because we just read here in Revelation 12, 9 that Satan is cast out of heaven. Okay, so that's the clarity. When it says cast out, it's cast out of heaven. So by doing this, Jesus took away Satan's ability to stand before God and accuse us, followers of Jesus, as being sinners. Satan didn't have that privilege anymore. 
Because Jesus paid the price for our sins at the cross, right? We are forgiven if we believe in Jesus. So now Satan can't accuse us before God anymore, saying that we deserve to die for our sins because Jesus died for our sins. Isn't that good? Yeah, our enemy has been defeated, friends. It's a beautiful thing. And that's why in Revelation 12, it continues on with this declaration of victory. It says in verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, It has come at last, salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. See, that's the father and the son there. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, that's Satan, has been thrown down to the earth. The one who accuses them before our God day and night. And they have been defeated by the blood of the Lamb. That's Jesus. So at the cross, Jesus defeats Satan. And it's by our testimony. That's by our faith in Jesus. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens. And you who live in the heavens, rejoice. But terror will come on the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you in great anger, knowing that he has little time. Oh man, this is such a good passage. So now defeated on the cross, Satan knows that his time, the moments that he has left to wreak havoc in this world is short. It's very little time left. Revelation 12.12, as you see, just made that clear. So in the days that we are living in right now, right now, Satan is furiously working to take down as many people as possible. Yes, at the cross, Jesus has victory over Satan, sin, death, and hell. But until Satan is thrown into the lake of fire and punished once and for all, he's still working against us, even though his accusations against us no longer have any clout because Jesus says, your accusations are falling on deaf ears. I paid the price, so your accusations mean nothing. Isn't that good? The person who hates you the most has no power over you because Jesus has defeated him. So back to John 12, verse 32 for a second. Jesus also says that he will be lifted up from the earth. So this happens when Jesus rises from the dead and ascends to heaven. This will be part of his work to call all people, Jews and Gentiles or non-Jewish people, that's us, calling all people to himself so that everyone can be saved from the sin that Satan used to accuse us and rule over us. All people have access to salvation and eternal life in heaven because we can all come to believe in Jesus Christ and make him our own savior. That's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. So knowing the victory that Jesus secures on the cross gives us courage today to war against Satan. You know, we can follow the example of righteous living that Jesus gave us, and that's one of our greatest tools, right? The spiritual armor of God, salvation, righteousness, truth, the gospel of peace, the sword of the spirit. Those are all things that God gives you in your life so that when you become a follower of him, you are equipped to stand firm against the attacks of Satan. Yes, he still comes after us. Does he have the same power he used to? No, he doesn't. But he still wants to take as many people down with him as possible. After Jesus is on the, Jesus's victory on the cross, but before Satan's ultimate demise, Satan's power is limited, but still real. So here's the thing. If Satan's power can still pose a threat, even though he's defeated, how does this work? 
Like, what does that mean for our reality right now? Because it's like, well, is he defeated once and for all? Is it happening? Well, let me explain it to you this way, okay? Karen and I, we go for, for walks pretty regularly around town. We like walking in the evenings and things like that. And there's certain yards in town that we'll pass by, and those yards will have a dog in them. Most of the time, those dogs are outside. But those dogs, though they bark and growl, not, not all of them, but some of them, those dogs are bound, okay? They are either on a leash or they're behind a fence. So as long as Karen and I stay in the street on the path that we have chosen to walk, we're okay. If we were to venture into that dog's yard onto their turf, that's when we would become vulnerable because we'd be within reach and they could harm us if they wanted to. So think of it this way. As we live today, if we stay on the path that leads towards God... If we choose to live a life where we say no to sin and yes to righteousness, I know it's not easy, but we have the power of God in us to help us do those things. That's when Satan has no jurisdiction over us. If we venture off the path saying, okay, Jesus, I believe in you. Now I'm going to go and live my life like hell again. We've just entered right back into the same miserable experience where Satan had authority over us. Satan is very legalistic. And he can only honor what God has allowed him to honor. So if we say, Jesus, I believe in you, but I'm going to be addicted to drugs, alcohol, pornography, then what I'm doing is, Satan, you can have access to my life again. That's what I've just told him. But if I say, Jesus, I love you, I believe in you, and I'm choosing to follow you, I don't want to live the way I used to. I want to be redeemed and renewed so that my spirit is aligned with yours, and I want to walk the path of righteousness and morality with you that only you can help me do. That's when all of a sudden Satan's power, though he has a big bark, it can't touch us. It's amazing that God has accomplished this for us already. So in this life, friends, through the righteous living and abiding with Christ that we're encouraged all over the Bible to maintain, that's how we can stay in victory over Satan. Ephesians 6.13, this is what Paul is saying. Therefore put on every piece of God's armor. Why? So you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then, after the battle, you will still be standing firm. I hope this makes sense. I know this is a big point, but if you have questions, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. So after saying all these things, after explaining what his death on the cross would accomplish, then it continues on here in verse 34. The crowd responded, we understood from scripture that the Messiah would live forever. How can you say that the son of man will die? Just who is this son of man anyway? So to these people who had just welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem, waving palm branches, hailing him as their king, they are shocked at what they're hearing. These people believe that the Messiah that they are waiting for would live forever, that he was immortal and could not die. These people thought that their Messiah would come and set up an earthly kingdom with earthly power. When Jesus says that he is going to die, and he explained what his death would accomplish for us spiritually, They didn't know what to do with this because that's not the Jesus that they were looking for. So I think that what we learn here is it's important not to try to make Jesus fit into our expectations. Jesus often has done the unexpected throughout the Gospel of John. And many people were always saying, I don't think we should do this. This isn't a good idea. Remember when Jesus and his disciples went through Samaria? Oh, that's not a great idea, Jesus. Why don't we go around? Jesus was always doing the unexpected. 
So why not continue to believe that his way of doing things is still right? Jesus' wisdom and understanding are just so much greater than ours. I love that we can yield to him. And even if we don't understand fully, we can still trust that his ways are good. Because has, has Jesus been good for you up to this point in your life? Some would say amen. Yeah. yeah. So why would he stop now, right? I think it's just good to remember to let Jesus tell us what is true and how to live rather than us trying to force him into our reality. Verse 35. And Jesus replied, my light will shine for you just a little longer. Walk in the light while you still can, so the darkness will not overtake you. Ah, another, another promise about living today. Those who walk in darkness cannot see where they are going. Put your trust in the light while there is still time. Then you will become children of the light. After saying these things, Jesus went away and was hidden from them. So knowing that his death is near, Jesus urges the people, yet again, believe in me. When we believe in Jesus, we walk out of the darkness and the blindness that comes with that because we're in sin and we walk into the light of Jesus' love and forgiveness and he reveals to us that there's a new way to live here on this earth in righteousness and truth. Walking in sin is a blind and frustrating experience, but having the light of truth that Jesus shines into our lives when we put our trust and believe in him, that's what changes everything. I remember leading a guy to Christ years ago, a teenager at a drop-in center in Winnipeg. And I, I asked him afterwards, after explaining the gospel, he accepted. I asked him, how do you feel now? And he actually stopped. He paused. He looked up into the sky for a second. And this is the most beautiful answer I've ever heard when I've led someone to Christ. He looked at me and says, I feel like I have a whole new life ahead of me. Isn't that exactly what it's supposed to be? Like, that's perfect. That's exactly what we're, that what we're signing up for. Jesus, the life I've had up to this point is not what I want. It's been marked by sin and darkness. You have the light that leads to life. I want that life. So I'm ending things here today by your power, and I'm beginning a new path. What a glorious response, right? So at this point, John, the gospel writer, he begins to comment on, on Jesus, saying a few things, starting at verse 37. But despite all the miraculous signs Jesus had done, most of the people still did not believe in him. This is exactly what Isaiah the prophet had predicted. Lord, who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? But the people couldn't believe. For as Isaiah also said, the Lord has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they, their eyes cannot see and their hearts cannot understand. And they cannot turn to me and have me heal them. Isaiah was referring to Jesus when he said this because he saw the future and spoke of the Messiah's glory. So one thing I want to touch on from this. Does what we just read in verse 40 mean that God prevents people from believing in Jesus and being saved? Because it says right there, the Lord has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. The answer very quickly is no way. God would never tells someone, I'm not allowing you to come to faith in me. That just isn't his character and it's not his nature. But what for, verse 40 does mean is that God gives people over to the stubbornness of their own hearts. If people refuse to believe in Jesus, God allows their choices to be felt to the fullest extent. You and I are going to meet people who, have, who choose for whatever reason to resist God for their entire lives. They become so set in their ways and so hardened against anything that has to do with Jesus that they simply won't believe. 
And God, because he gives us free will to choose for ourselves, he will honor their choice. Years ago, I worked with a guy named Corey. He was open to talking about Jesus with me. For several weeks uh, during our lunch breaks, we would talk about who Jesus was. And I, I would share with Corey about the love that Jesus has for people, including Corey himself. We talked about Jesus' power to free people from sin. I gave Corey a Bible, and at one point, Corey even, praise God, chose to believe in Jesus for himself. Obviously, through all of this, I could tell that Corey was open to hearing about God. When I asked him, though, about sharing these things with his wife, he said to me, I could never do that. Very surprised, obviously, I asked, what do you mean? And Corey proceeded to tell me about the family that his wife grew up in. They were completely against Jesus. When Corey met his wife's family for the first time, Corey had a tattoo of a cross on his forearm. Even though he wasn't a believer and didn't understand the significance of the cross, he just thought it looked cool, like a lot of people with tattoos do, right? No, I'm just kidding. I have no idea. There's always good meaning behind these things. So even though Corey wasn't a Christian, he still had this tattoo on his arm of a cross. However, once he met his father-in-law for the first time in his home and his father-in-law saw the tattoo, he cursed at Corey and he became angry and visibly upset. He threatened Corey, telling him that he would never be allowed in his house again unless he wore long sleeves to cover up his tattoo. Totally shocked, Corey agreed to the demands and later Corey's wife explained that her father was completely against God and anything and anyone associated with God. Isn't that just tragic? It's just a tattoo. It's just a picture of a cross on someone who hasn't even at that point made a decision to make Jesus their Lord. Is that not the definition of a hardened heart? And it's a shame when people dig in their heels so hard about Jesus for whatever reason that they can't even have a conversation about him. So unfortunately, like verse 37 said, most of the people still did not believe in Jesus at this point. Verse 42 says something slightly different. Many people did believe in him, however, including some of the Jewish leaders, but they wouldn't admit it for fear that the Pharisees would expel them from the synagogue for they loved human praise more than the praise of God. So first we had this group of people whose hearts were totally hardened towards Jesus. And now we have this group of people who believe in Jesus, but won't admit it. This is just as tragic. Some may argue, well, at least they believe the right things about Jesus, even if they're scared to admit those beliefs to others. But Jesus himself says in Matthew 10, verse 32 and 33, everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But everyone who denies me here on earth, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. And when I hear this verse, it sounds to me like Jesus is saying the truth, that true faith is a public matter, not a private one. If due to embarrassment or fear of what other people will think of us, we can't bring ourselves to admit that we believe in Jesus... Jesus says in super plain terms that he will deny us before the Father. When Jesus acknowledges us before the Father in heaven, it means that he's telling Jesus, Hey, look, you see that one over there in Kandu? They're mine. They belong to me and they are safe with me for all eternity. But when Jesus denies someone before the Father, it means that he's telling God, Hey, now that person there in Kandu, 
I wish it was different, but I don't know them. And they don't know me. We have no relationship with one another. So these people who are concerned about losing their social status, their livelihood, their place in the Jewish temple, they have put the highest value on the worst things possible, the temporary comforts of this world. Instead, when we freely acknowledge to other people, both inside and outside the church, that Jesus is our Lord, that we believe in Him, that we trust in Him for salvation, it's in those moments of public acknowledgement that we affirm over and over our place in eternity right next to the One who saved us. So now in his final public message, Jesus speaks to the people and basically summarizes everything that John chapter 1 through John chapter 12 has said. Verse 44, Jesus shouted to the crowds, If you trust me, you are trusting not only me, but also God who sent me. For when you see me, you are seeing the one who sent me. Jesus has been sent to earth by God the Father And faith in Jesus is faith in God the Father's plan to save all people from their sins. Jesus and the Father are undeniably one. 46. I have come as a light to shine in this dark world so that all people who put their trust in me will no longer remain in darkness. Mm -hmm. Jesus' message is like a light that shines into a dark place. People can't see spiritual truth without knowing Jesus. We were stumbling around in the darkness of our sin when we were without Jesus. But with Jesus, we walked towards God because Jesus shone the way for us to go. Verse 47, I will not judge those who hear me, but don't obey me. For I have come to save the world and not judge it. But all who reject me and my message will be judged on the day of judgment by the truth I have spoken. So once again, here Jesus hasn't come to judge the earth or the people of this earth at this time. He's here to save us. That's the work that he's come here for. But here's a fair warning. Everyone who rejects Jesus and the truth that he gives at a future time will experience God's judgment. So the clear message that Jesus is the only one who can give eternal life is undeniable. And we have a choice on whether or not we will believe what Jesus has said. Believers are given the gift of eternal life. Unbelievers will be eternally separated from God and never enter the glory of heaven. Last two verses. I don't speak on my own authority. The Father who sent me has commanded me what to say and how to say it. And I know, this command, I know his commands lead to eternal life. So I say whatever the Father tells me to say. I just love that at the conclusion of his public ministry, Jesus affirms once again, hey, this actually isn't really about me, guys. It's my submission to the Father and his plans that he's given to me. Well, it's just such a great example. Jesus knows this for himself and and that God's plans are good. That's why he's submitted to him. And it's through his example that we understand that we can submit to the Father and experience such goodness in our lives as well. So this passage that we were in today, it felt to me kind of like a punctuation mark on on the message that Jesus has been consistently telling people over and over again for the first 12 chapters here in the Gospel of John. It's like we've heard yet again today, this is who I am. Here's what I'm going to do. This is what I will accomplish. Are you with me? As a longtime follower of Jesus... This message from Jesus today once again cemented my faith in Him. 
Believing in Jesus is the only means of salvation, period. There is no way, other way. It doesn't matter what your opinions are. It doesn't matter what your heritage is. Jesus is the only way. And even more, it convinces me yet again that anything I do to pursue happiness or holiness that doesn't start with obedience and submission to Jesus first is empty and pointless. Verse 26 said, anyone who wants to serve me must follow me. Isn't that just so clear? I don't know how you can dance around that fact and say, well, yeah, but it's really just about something else. Or, eh, church attendance is really where salvation is. No. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me. And here's why. Because my servants must be where I am. I love that Jesus wants to have us in proximity to him. And then he says, and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. I just think it's incredible that the Father would give us His Son and that Jesus would willingly go through something so unpleasant so that we would have the chance to respond to Him. But then on top of that, even with our imperfections, when we respond to Him, the Father wants to honor us. Doesn't that just blow your mind? Like, we don't deserve that. Like, it... I've never felt in my whole life like I deserve anything that I've received from God, but I have received so much. And every single one of us needs to choose what we want. Are we going to follow? Are we going to serve? That's the only place where honor comes into our lives. Faithfully following and serving Jesus is what we need to choose each and every day. I think the message is pretty clear.